welcome back to the Lived Expertise is Greater Than Degrees podcast. I'm Kayla, and I am really excited today to interview my friend Jess. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about how Jess and I got connected, but we just met this spring and have already started many projects together. So Jess and I are kind of professional partners and you're going to be hearing a lot from us. And this might be the first time you're hearing from both of us, but it should not be the last because Jess is awesome. And Jess, I would love it if you would introduce yourself. Yeah, so uh, I'm Jess. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a queer neurodivergent occupational therapist, a social science researcher, and accessibility and inclusion consultant. Uh, I wanted to come on to talk about my lived experience um, from my perspective as like a queer person, a first-gen college grad, an academic, a Puerto Rican, um, an autistic person, and a fat person. Um, these identities have really like shaped my life. And because of society's reaction to who I am, I am really uh, unique in the lived experience that I have. Um, and I say that really intentionally because I imagine if any of my identities were really destigmatized or like universally accepted, my life would really look different. Well, I'm so glad we can dissect a little bit of them today over the next, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. And uh, my first question for you, Jess, is what does lived expertise is greater than degrees mean to you? So you actually told me about this well before you asked me to do this. And I will share what my first reactions were. So the first time you told me, I was actually very salty about my grad school application rejections. Um, so I do have a master's, but I've been applying for my PhD for years now. Um, and so to me, when I first heard it, I I was like, that is the whitest, most privileged shit I've ever heard. Um, I'm not going to lie. When you said it, I cringed. I was worried that people um, like me wouldn't hear you out because that is not our lived experience and the lived experience of other people with even more minoritized identities. Um, without the context of really knowing what the podcast is about, it made me frustrated. Um, it's a great phrase and is a really good ultimate societal goal, um, but it's really hard to hear coming from uh, marginalized identities, to hear that our lived experience is greater than a degree because I can't apply for a majority of grants as a PI with lived experience. I can't get paid as a researcher the same way a PhD or an EDD can. Um, for a majority of jobs, I can't be a professor without a doctorate. So I would never get the security of tenure without a degree. Um, I can't use my lived experience to earn the same wages as someone with a degree in my lived experience. I've been booted from first authorship on papers and projects because I lack the proper degree. So I know the phrase lived experience is greater than degrees will give a lot of academics all of these good feelings, but right now it's not a reality. So it can 
frustrate some people. Um, lived experience plus degrees is really just what counts right now. And I hope we can move to a place where lived experience is valued the same. And that's why um, you know that a lot of my current projects have representation from the communities that I study. Um, I don't ever want to be that academic that peers in from above. I really want to focus my work on community inclusion. So I do things like CBPR, which is short for community-based participatory research, or uh, PAR, which is participatory action research, because I want to be on the ground. I want to be giving to the community, not just taking their experiences and disseminating it out. Well, I'm really glad we've gotten to the point that you can tell me that it's, it, it was not uh, a good idea. You didn't think this was a good idea or a good phrase in the beginning because, yeah, it's. I think it's catchy, but it is privileged. It's not something that is yeah. reality. And that's, that's kind of the point of the podcast is that with these different yeah. guests, we've been able to dissect that people have lived experience that isn't valued, that isn't respected, that isn't paid for. And I think we can definitely speak to classism and capitalism and academia and how it's very much a pay your dues kind of profession. And because of that, we we leave a lot of people out. And I think it's so cool that we have a, a movement, especially of young professionals now who see the value in collaboration because without it, we're just taking and not giving back. Yes, that's why I really love the work that I'm doing with Lincoln Memorial University. They really want to involve the community from the beginning. So like the research question stage. So what do we even want to look at? Because so many people put their, so many researchers put their views on what questions should be asked about a community. And the community doesn't care about that. Um, a lot of like genetics research in autism is looking at how to get rid of autistic people, how to cho choose the whatever flag they can find that will flag for a future autistic person so that they can recommend what families should do um, when they find out that's what their fetus may have. Um, and if you ask the autistic community, that is not what we want the money for research to be going to. We want to know how we can find supports. We want to know which supports help the most of us. We want to know how to get and keep a job without burning out. Honestly, even ADHD people um, that I've talked to, wow, we all get burnout. Fridays is just like crash and burn for so many neurodivergent folks. And I really love the idea of involving the community at the point of what question are we investigating because then you can build on that and like the work that um, Dr. Schmidt and Lincoln Memorial are doing also involves the community towards the end so towards the end of the research process like dissemination and giving presentations because that is then giving those people that experience that they can put on their resume which is valued in a capitalist society. Oh, those are such big points. And I've, I'm familiar with participatory action research and community-based 
PR, practice research, participatory research. <laughs> um, so, but, but a lot of the things that tend to be missing from participatory action research is, is involvement through the whole process. So, so involvement in picking the research question, picking the topics of interest, choosing the participants and making sure the participants in the study, um, you know, are getting value from participating and also getting value afterwards. And so that things are giving back, that changes are being made, that action's being taken. And that's, I think, what CBPR is, is kind of closing the gap on in that nothing about us without us approach to research and practice. Yes. And the nothing about us without us, but then also involving us in the rest of the process. That's what I really love about it. Um, and that's how I think we're going to come and close that gap between lived experience and a degree in that experience. Yeah, definitely. Because the gap, the gap is, is huge. And I think that's why especially neurodivergent communities have really low employment rates. It's, it's not because they're not skilled, or we're not skilled. It's, it's because the skills are not backed by degrees oftentimes. A lot of entry-level jobs require a bachelor's degree, but somebody might have a doctorate-level amount of knowledge in something, and they're not getting hired because they don't have the diploma to back it up. We've actually seen that in some of our research. I actually just gave a presentation at Summit of Scholars, and part of the research was actually our participants who were quite diverse, did have degrees. They had bachelor's degrees. Some even had doctorate degrees. And they were making under 50K a year. And that was really shocking. But when we looked at things like interview data or even some of the literature, it wasn't that people don't know things. It wasn't that people aren't hard workers. It was that the workplaces are just not set up for neurodivergent folks. And then you see people working for maybe six months or a year, and then they have to take two years off because of their burnout, their mental health is horrendous. They can't even get out of bed and they're having horrible mental health symptoms like suicidal thoughts. And that is more indicative of a system that didn't value accommodations because accommodations were the things that people found made them most successful and accommodations that weren't jumping through hoops. It wasn't, you have to show a doctor's note, plus the doctor has to write another letter and then your therapist needs to write a letter. Readily accessible accommodations that didn't require all of this privilege because having a diagnosis is a privilege. So where you just say, this is what I need, and I need you to trust me that this is what I need, um, was really what helped people be successful. And obviously, I don't want to name success as making over 50000 a year, but in a society where everything costs money, um, we really want to help use our research to set people up and accommodations that are easy to get. Um, that may not be something you've done in the past. Like one of the accommodations people really liked was having flexible start times and not flexible start times as in you can come anywhere between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., but something like you wouldn't be penalized if you came in at 9, 10, because so many people have time blindness and 
the anxiety and just, I don't know how to describe it. Like the, the pressure of getting there on time and fearing repercussions, knowing that you have the flexibility in your workplace is super helpful and it helps prevent things like burnout. Um, and also having like flexible ways of working that you can work partially in an office or partially from home um, is really important. And um, some of the newer and not as well-researched accommodations, but show a lot of good promise is having open-ended vacation time um, or personal time where you don't need to point to, I'm taking medical leave. You're just saying, I need to take time off and making sure your company is not putting up barriers. Cause some companies will say we have unlimited PTO, but then they make it where if you take PTO, you're risking losing future bonuses or um, advancements in your job. And that's something that I think if that barrier is removed, people would be more apt to take that unlimited PTO to really benefit them and keep them from having to take years off to get over burnout. Well, and I think some of those accommodations that you mentioned are, are really helpful for preventing burnout because I think one of the biggest causes of burnout is both the accommodation. So yeah, access to diagnosis, disclosing a diagnosis, and then getting reasonable accommodations where a lot of workplaces and people think of accommodations as just meeting those ADA compliance factors, but those are from the nineties and they are not very helpful to most people, but it's sort of like the curb cut phenomenon where like the more that we just try to do something, we can do small things and they benefit so many people. So the curb cut effect is we have curb cuts because people with wheelchairs need to safely get off of the sidewalk um, to cross streets, but it also benefits strollers, bikers, roller skates, skateboards, and just, I mean, so many actual benefits that you don't think about till you're moving furniture down the street. And then you go, wow, everybody won. How great was that design? Um, but with that, I think being creative about accommodations and seeing accommodations not as something that people earn, but something that should be standard. And also that masking causes so much burnout. So if people are able to be more themselves, be more comfortable, spend time working remotely or taking time off, then they get to take care of themselves. And if they're meeting their job requirements, then they're doing their job. And that's all it should be in the 40 hours a week and the nine to five, that stuff's all arbitrary, but it causes so much hurt for a lot of people. Yeah, that's working from home is the number one way that I've learned to unmask my autism. I remember when I was working in an office, I used to wear headphones in ear headphones, not over ear, but I wore them so much I was getting chronic ear infections. <laughs> and it was because I couldn't focus with, so I'm the type of autistic that needs to have the constant noise, but our lab was dead silent. Like a pin could drop and you would hear it. Everyone was silent and it, like I can hear the blood in my body. 
<laughs> I can hear the classrooms down the hall and it was so distracting. But if I could blast like metal in my headphones, got so much work done. And when I was home, my partner is the same way. If we blast metal, we can get work done. And so shockingly during the pandemic, we were really, really productive because all day we would just shuffle metal playlists on Spotify and get things done. That is my nightmare. <laughs> that is, this my is our nightmare. opposite neurodivergences. I know. So for anybody listening, Jess and I talk pretty much every single day since the AOTA 2023 conference, which is a whole nother podcast subject matter. Um, but we have been in contact uh, pretty much daily since then. And we have learned that our neurodivergences are so opposite. I, first of all, can't stand listening to metal music in general, but also could never get anything done. I would just feel like my- oh, like a monster. Old- no that is too much I would love that quiet lab I know I would love it Mm -mm. it was so hard to get work done but also I will say getting dressed was so hard going into a lab knowing I was going to a university because I had to think about what clothes I wouldn't be feeling all day while also looking like a professional and not a student and having sort of like literal masking. I was literally putting something on that said, look at me, I'm, I'm a smart working person. Um, whereas when I was at home, I could literally wear whatever I wanted. As long as I could throw a blouse over whatever I was wearing or a blazer. I actually kept a blazer on the back of my chair. And I'd be like, you can't see the band t-shirt, I promise. And that was how I would do I meetings. Had a Zoom blazer. I also had a Zoom blazer. Because yeah, oh my God, just because the clothing that you wear at home, whatever, you can be productive if you're comfortable. People are more productive if they're comfortable and comfortable can be sensory wise, but it can also be comfortable because of your body size, because of your gender, because of all sorts of different factors, what colors you like to wear, what the, how worn in this shirt is. I mean, there's so many layers to clothing and it becomes very complicated when you have a workplace and you have expectations about what professionalism means and what professionalism looks like in that place. It, it it adds to these demands that give us the Friday afternoon nap. <laughs> yes, we. I used to literally take naps every Friday and I would wake up feeling like I had the flu because I was so burnt out. And it became almost like a tradition in our house where we would just order food on Fridays because there was no way we were doing a single thing after 5 30. I am ordering food when we get off of this interview because there's, I am nothing too. <laughs> there's nothing to cook and it's too hot to cook anything in this. Oh, home. I know. I just went to the grocery store yesterday and all that food can rot in there because I am not <laughs> cooking it tonight. That is another thing. That's that's a ADHD tax. It's like buying groceries and, and letting them go to waste. There's so many layers to this stuff um, in terms of, yeah, how we, how we label productivity. And, and it comes back to, I think, in, in part, this idea of lived expertise, where when I started this podcast, it was 
the idea, the title, it came from this idea that if somebody has credentials after their name, they get respect. People expect that they are intelligent, that they know what they're talking about, that they are a good person. And none of those things are necessarily true. And I, I think that it, it is valuable to talk about how credentials don't necessarily mean intelligence. They do not correlate necessarily. It means you put the time in, you did the work, and you got to the finish line. But there are so many reasons why people do and do not succeed in academic and other like licensing type of settings. And um, part of this my pursuit of a doctorate is so that I get some respect when I say that having a doctorate doesn't necessarily make me better or smarter or more intelligent or more um, experienced at something. I don't refer to myself as a sexuality expert because how can I be an expert on something that 8 million people have the opportunity to do in different ways? And so I just, I just, you know, am pursuing it for different reasons, but that brings me to the question of what's an important thing that you learned in school and how did you learn this lesson? So I, I'm not going to pick a lesson because I'm going to be annoying in this answer. Um, so I'm going back to high school to be completely honest, um, because my high school experience was really interesting. Um, I remember critical thinking and being questioning everything was something that they hammered into us. And it was everything from being able to take being critical to the methodology of being critical. So um, in high school, we had an art class where when we would do an art, like a project, we would finish it. And it wasn't just like you get an A, you also had to stand critique. And that is hard and it wasn't mean critique shockingly um it was not mean critique it wasn't like standing there in your your i almost said colleagues yes in high school my colleagues um so like fellow students would give actual feedback like is this meant to look like this can you explain why you did this and in my head i was like no i'm autistic and i just want to get done um but it taught me to take critical feedback because that's so hard. Um, and then in like science class, we were taught obviously the scientific method of investigation and what it means to be critical in investigating something. Um, like in my history classes, we were taught to go as close to the primary source as humanly possible. And then in like my English classes, we were taught how to actually find evidence. Um, I remember when I finally learned what a journal was, I felt so grown up, but then I would, because I felt so grown up, I would then use that to actually like find things and find evidence for things that I thought were true. Um, and I'm really grateful for that because that ended up constantly popping up throughout my life and future education. Um, I grew up around a lot of misinformation and like be completely honest, like propaganda for a certain mindset. Um, and part of how I got to the place that I am at is by being really critical about the thoughts that I perceived to be fact and dissecting them. Um, when I was finally able to be independent, 
I, I didn't take anything that I grew up thinking as a fact, as a fact, until I actually read about it, went back to some primary sources, looked up news and um, things like that from the time. And that really changed the way I thought and acted around things. Um, I felt like I became more open-minded because I never felt like I knew for a fact what anything was. Um, like, for example, when I first read about occupational therapy, I was a psych undergrad and I was working in eating disorders lab and I saw OT being prescribed for these very, very sick children. And my first thought was, these kids are so sick. They were teenagers, but I was like, these kids are so sick. Why are you getting them jobs? Um, I had never questioned the use of the word occupation. And I've just felt like I knew for a fact that an occupation was a job. And that was also one of those things that really humbled me. And I went back to the sources and um, I was working with Dr. Alex Timko and I went back and read some of her work and started to learn about the history of occupational therapy. And I was really fascinated that the word occupation didn't mean what I thought for years it meant. Um, and that in the world of OT, occupation is anything that you do. And now I'm an occupational therapist. I am so glad I was muted for your entire answer to that question because I had so many reactions, both visibly and audibly. And I'm glad I was muted because lots of things. I also took art class in high school and we had critiques, but we were all friends in the class. And so it was like, hey, pretty cool choice of mixed media over there. And we were like, we, we mostly hyped each other up. But I, I look back on moments and I know every time I had an art critique, it was something that we had probably two months to work on, some type of themed project. And we worked on it and I got nothing done, nothing done, nothing done. And it's the final week and the critique is Friday. And so then I'm suddenly in the art room over lunch, before school, after school, trying to get it done. And it's like, why did nobody think I had ADHD? It's so obvious when I look back and things like that. And, and I also had, yeah, musical and dance performances in like elementary school for our parents at the nursing home we were all over the place and it's like that sort of stuff was hard while it was happening but i think now it's why i'm comfortable you know public speaking that's never been a fear of mine because once you do public dancing you get over public speaking pretty quick <laughs> i did dance in college too and i like took them as classes i didn't want to take phys ed I thought that was ridiculous. I was like, I am out of high school. I'm not taking another physical education class. But one of the options was to go to the art school and take a dance class. And I was like, bet I'm going to do that. And I took two levels of modern dance. But part of some of your own choreography was you had to like have a story behind it. And my autism is like, my story is that I am actually flexible enough to do this, or I have the power in my legs to do this, so I'm doing it, so it can be done. The most concrete story. It's like yes, and then people, and then people in critique would be like, "I saw the emotion where you felt heartbreak, which went along with the song," and I was like, "Correct, that is exactly what I was going for." 
wise audience. <laughs> and then I, I got a really negative critique on this piece. I, I liked it because I felt strong while I was doing it. I, I, I was a vegetarian at the time. And to be a strong vegetarian, I was like, yes, I can, I can jump. I can, um, I can bend. I can, I can do some of these endurance moves. And that was literally how I choreographed something. I picked a song that I had been stimming to for weeks on end. And then I choreographed to that. And the choreography was literally, I'm strong enough to do it. Look at me do it. And I remember the feedback I got was none of the emotion from those moves are congruent or uh, flow well with the messaging of the song. And in my head, I was like, sure. Definitely. I don't. And they would ask me to defend my work and I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, yes. my God, I and think if I, I feel situation, I'd do like half improv. I don't even think I could have stuck to choreography. So impressive. Oh, I rolled my ankle. I remember at one point and I was like, I can't do any turns now. <laughs> act natural, act natural. I was like That's- floor work. We are doing floor work, which oh, was totally meant to happen follow-up question do you have any recordings of these performances i do and i will burn them before you ever see them no No, i had i was still in my emo like hardcore emo phase so my hair was a disaster wow but let it be known that the vegetarian had enough muscle to get through the dance routine let it barely i was so anemic (laughs) so bad at being a vegetarian fair vegetarian that could use an iron supplement (laughs) okay don't you worry all right you and me we're getting back on topic okay next question Jess (laughs) what is the most important thing that you've learned outside of school and how did you learn this lesson and I it's okay if you do more than one again um so I think the most important thing I learned outside of school is how much unconscious bias will impact life. Um, I remember thinking everyone was super aware of the way they thought, and therefore, if that's how they thought, that's how they acted. But some people will really try to say that they hold no negative bias, which is impossible. Um, So the way that that shows up most for me and impacts me the most is lots of people have anti-fat bias. I didn't always live in a larger body. Um, I used to tip the scale more towards thin to average. And when I really started to heal my relationship with food, ironically, and movement, I gained weight, which is fine, is neutral to me now. Um, But it was not neutral to the people around me. And I remember being in OT school and it was so different. I was of average size then, and people treated me very different than the way I'm treated now. Um, and as an autistic person, I really had to have a mentor spell that out for me explicitly. I remember being very confused as to what changed. I remember thinking, am I actually a bad OT? Did Was I a good student, but a, I'm now a bad occupational therapist. 
And this mentor really spelled it out for me that since I live in a larger body now, that I have to be cognizant of the many nonverbal cues I give off and that people will take in. So like a bias that a lot of people hold, conscious or unconscious, towards fat people is that they're gross, um, smelly, unhygienic, unintelligent, unprofessional. So for example, when we co-presented earlier this year at the conference, I knew I'd be scrutinized for how I appeared because I have near moments to make an impression in such a busy place. So I knew I had to prepare. And I knew if I tried to dress in my typical day-to-day clothes, I'd be seen as a slob. Um, and I'm non you know, I'm non-binary. Um, but if I tried to dress more androgynous at my size, even in a professional setting, many cis people will view that on a fat body as someone just wearing unflattering clothes. And I really couldn't afford financially afford for people to view me as unprofessional at a conference where I spent so much money to get there and I needed to make those connections to advance my career. Um, so that meant that I needed to lean into my assigned gender at birth. So femme clothes, or as I think I told you, I call it my girl cosplay. Um, I made sure I ordered clothes about four months in advance of our conference. So I'd be able to take them in, figure out if I liked them, if they'd be flattering, if I could feel the tag, if the fabric was too much, and then take them to get tailored. So they hit the ground, they hit the top of my shoe. Um, They tapered at my thigh at the right way, because if my clothes didn't fit perfectly or they weren't in style, that was the other thing I made sure I was following the latest trends. Um, I ran the risk of our colleagues viewing me as sloppy and unprofessional. And I mean, this goes beyond clothes too. I mean, you can tell I have very thick and curly hair um, and I sweat really easily because of a side effect of one of my medications. Um, When curly hair gets sweaty, it is just a halo of frizz and other curly people get this. But in our profession, we are a very white woman that is very put together and thin. And I knew I wasn't going to have that leeway. Uh, My body size was already going to be working against me as an unconscious bias. So I had to also have socially acceptable hair. So you know this, before the conference, I went to the salon. I had my roots dealt with. I had my color fixed. I had it cut and I had it professionally straightened. Um, And I want to acknowledge just because if anyone sees me or goes to my Instagram that I'm still really privileged um, despite everything I just said. And it's a bummer. It's a, it's a inconvenience that I had to drop money at the salon before a professional Uh, conference, but it's nothing like real hair discrimination. Um, Black folks have been dealing with hair discrimination since colonization, and they've had their natural hair stigmatized and have workplace rules placed against them. Um, Crown acts are being passed in the U.S., um, but society really still holds that bias. You can legislate, but those biases still exist. Um, And CROWN is an acronym. Um, It's create a respectful and open world for natural hair. Um, And I will just 
cut myself off because this isn't my lane. Um, I'm very white passing, um, but people like um, Essie Eggleston Bracey, um, and there's a professor at Drexel, um, Professor Wendy Green, and they are some really good sources to turn to that actually have this lived experience. So people should look into that. But um, yeah, it takes a lot of planning to attend a conference as a fat healthcare professional. I literally prepared with my therapist and my dietitian so I could be ready for all of the wild and inappropriate and rude comments people make. Um, you get so much condescension for not being a slim, muscled person in healthcare. Um, I've gotten so much non-consensual eating and fitness advice from colleagues without them knowing that I have an extensive eating disorder history and I'm still repairing my relationship with movement. And that's the thing. They just want to pathologize what they see. They just want to pathologize a body size. They want to fix me and they see me as a patient and they think that they can like in air quotes help, um, but they don't know that at this body size that I've run a half marathon, they don't know that at this body size, I'm an aerialist. I lift weights with this body. I don't need them thin splaining diet advice to me. And when I try to like gently rebuff their advice, I get things like, well, clients don't want rehab from someone that doesn't look healthy. And that's a mindset we really need to move past in healthcare is that you are only going to be respected if you are either a thin person or a muscled person. That was just so much. I was taking some notes on things I want to comment on, but like I say to pretty much everybody I have on this podcast is I can't wait to listen to this when it comes out because there's so much that you are bringing up for me that I want to think about and talk about it and, and kind of destigmatize with other people. And one of the things that you brought me back to is how before conference, we had created a three hour workshop together over email, Google drive and zoom. And so until conference, when we decided to go from basically strangers to roommates, <laughs> we um, had never seen each other below the shoulders. And we had that zoom phenomenon yes. where you spend, you can spend many hours with people all, on virtual meetings and you see them shoulders up and then suddenly you meet them in person and you realize that your brain created a body for them, that it gave them a height, a weight, a lead, like you just created a oh, picture. You were six foot in my mind, maybe 5'11". <laughs> I, when what? I saw you for the first time, I was like, that's not what I was expecting. That's hilarious because I'm like five one tops on a good day. <laughs> but but yeah, I remember and then you were outside of our Airbnb and you were like, I can't find the door. And I looked down and I see the top of your head, which has purple hair. And I went, oh, that's Jess. <laughs> and then and then we we like met and hugged and we were like, wait, why? And we just like looked each other up and down because we just created some type of body. And and it's such a weird thing because we also did it when everybody was wearing face masks all the time is we didn't realize that we gave people a bottom half of a face until we saw their real bottom half of a face. And we were like, oh my gosh, I didn't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. And so we're, we're, that's a weird thing that we had experienced with each other. And then I also think it, 
we had talked about how expensive it is to go to a national conference. Um, and I had talked about doing a, maybe like an Instagram reel about how much money I spent on membership to an organization, registration for the conference, flights, Airbnb, food, all the things. And then you had echoed that with saying, and all this extra money to think in advance about how you looked when you went there. And then I just, I, I mean, I overpack, I just throw a bunch of stuff in a suitcase and that day I figured it out. But I also recognize that that's because I'm in a profession where I very much fit in as a straight presenting, straight sized and mostly straight haired woman. <laughs> and so that is something that I don't even have to spend the mental energy or the money on that you enlightened me to. Yeah, I remember running around the day before going, where's my they them pin? I'm going to be in girl cosplay. People are never going to gender me correctly. Um, but yeah, I had my outfits planned out so far ahead. I had Google Sheets about like what undergarments I was going to wear with each outfit. Um, I had an app that let me make sure that the waist of the jumpsuit would hit at the bottom of a cardigan to make sure that the dimensions didn't look weird. And it was just because I knew I had such a short amount of time. And it's not like, it's not like I was going to trick anyone into thinking I was thin. That was not going to happen. But at least if I could look as professional as possible in that short amount of time, people would hopefully be open to collaborating, open to being someone that I could professionally turn to as a mentor, things like that. And it took a lot of money and a lot of planning, many Google Sheets, many Google Docs. Many documents were created to pull this off. And I would say maybe my outside observer perspective is that I think you navigated conference successfully. You've gotten connections out of this that have led to different opportunities and some of which we're able to do together, which is the most exciting. So everybody listening should stay tuned. Um, but I, I also think it's, I wonder about kind of the return on investment. So like how much effort and money and time that you put into stuff like that, like, does it pay off? And is it worth putting that time into? Or, or is, it, is it almost possibly healthier to your relationship to yourself to kind of just not have to go through all of those hoops? I don't, I don't know. From it, let's get the perspective of an aerialist. Because um, I said ghost hoops, that didn't land. Uh, uh, <laughs> ha, ha. I right. don't do hoops, so <laughs> that's why I was so lost for a second. Edit it um, out. It was bad. <laughs> no, um, return on investment is such a funny way of saying that because I actually bought a bunch of clothes specifically, obviously, for conference, knowing that now conferences wouldn't be virtual. And I to prepare for conference, I was putting things together and I needed an app where I could visualize it. I'm one of those people that doesn't have, what is it, a mind's eye? Is that what we call it? Um, and I can't just look at stuff hanging in a closet and go, mm-hmm, those things for certain go together. I actually downloaded an app, it's called Purple, and you can write everything about an item. And it's actually super helpful because 
in femme clothes, especially, um, you can be like a medium in one brand, actually not even in one brand in one specific, like fabric of one brand and then be a two X in something else. Um, at one point when I was just starting out my journey to repair my relationship with food, I had everything from an extra small to an XXL in my closet and they all fit. And that was the thing that blew my mind. Uh, that's not the case anymore, but I wanted to be able to have data on that. I'm such a scientist. I'm such a nerd, but I downloaded this app mostly because when you add a new item, you add a picture of it and that's super helpful and you can get feedback like what season is this in? So I like rotate my closet on seasons. So I'll know where an item is at all times because it also has the location. So is it in my closet? Is it in my dresser? Is it in my storage unit? The price. And then I make outfits on this app. I sound like I'm plugging it. That's so bad. But you put in how much the outfit costs or how much the item cost, and then you can get a price per wear. And that's what, when you said return on investment, I was like, actually a pair of pants I have already have paid for themselves because I've worn them so much. That is something I think about when I'm shopping. Cause a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of people struggle with like impulse spending and, and I kind of go like, well, what does this actually cost me? I think about it in two ways. Like, what do I make per hour? And then what does, how many hours do I have to work to buy this thing? And then the opposite, if I buy this thing, how much did it cost every time I used it? And that's, that's so cool that the app calculates it for you. Um, and that you can coordinate different outfits and see what looks good together. And maybe if you are at a store and you're thinking about or online shopping and you're like, oh, I wonder if I could use this item. You can quickly probably scan through and see what you already own. Oh yeah. It's great. Like you can have accessories um, and then you can like rename your different parts of your closet. So I have things like um, jackets, but then I have blazers in a separate one. And then I have God, in Boston, you have to have everything from like a trench coat for spring to a trench coat for fall. And then you need three different types of winter coats based on how much ice, snow, or if it's just dry cold. Um, So I have like all of my different coats in there. And then I have different pants and stuff. And it really, it's, it's an app not meant for autism, but wow, is it helpful to an autistic person? That's universal design. Like that's it is that it's designed for people who are probably really into fashion, but it it's working for you. And I think it is helpful to plug those sorts of things because it helps, it helps each other out. I also wanted to plug a podcast that I love maintenance phase, which does a lot. Do you like it? I love it. I, oh, I, I love live it for Aubrey Gordon, Aubrey Gordon, Michael Hobbs. Yeah. And Aubrey's books. I, Awesome. awesome. I have, I think they're actually propping up my laptop right now. I love those but I have cited them so many times. It's ridiculous. Well, the books are awesome. And the podcast is awesome because the podcast, they go through like a lot of trend diets and they basically debunk a lot of stuff, but they also just do so much about just taking the morality out of people's body size. Like we, we, think we assume like you were saying about healthcare that like if a healthcare professional is in a bigger body that we assume that those things that they're lazy that they don't take care of themselves whatever and that's 
untrue because there are plenty of reasons that people can be in different bodies. And most of our bodies have a place where it's just going to naturally sit when we're healthy. And I think that, um, the opposite is that if we look at like someone who's thin and we go, wow, they must be, they must have their shit together. They must be nice. They must be rich. Like we go through all these sorts of things. And it's like, there's so many layers to how people look and what people eat. And in, in a country where we also have in a world where we have so many people starving and in food deserts and just unable to access healthy things, it's, it's really, it's really unfair that we place so much judgment on how people look. Yes. And even calling things healthy, like, do we mean nutrient dense? Do we mean that it's a fruit or vegetable? But if you could give, I mean, college me, you could have given me a zucchini and that would have been a healthy thing, but I didn't have access to any way to transform it into something edible. It great. I'm so glad I have this zucchini, but it's, it's literally going to rot in my mini fridge. And that's something that I think about all the time when people talk about food deserts and why are you eating fast food? I'm eating fast food because it's literally fast. Um, I have 20 minutes before I have to be home and I have to feed a family and it's calories. It's keeping me alive. It's, I'm not going to bed starving. And it's not always health. Like, I feel like the healthiest thing fed is best. I know that's for babies, but fed is best for people too. Um, it might not be like a salad with kale and lemon juice. And gosh, I'm trying to think of like superfood, superfoods. Like it doesn't have sliced almonds and like Quick, those, <laughs> those mushrooms that are, everyone thinks are going to anti-age you. It might not be that, but it's food and it's dinner and you're going to go to bed with a full stomach and you're not going to have all of the hormones in your body going, I'm starving. Let's hold on to every single fat molecule that we hold. And I think that's really important for people to get beyond. Not every choice needs to be a piece of kale wrapped around an apple slice. And, yeah. and, kale and also food. Salmonella. Like it's- exactly. Oh my gosh. But also like, that's another thing. An apple slice wouldn't be healthy for me. I'm allergic. And so many people try to give diet advice because they think people don't know better. I, I know that for most people, a sliced apple would be a great snack. But for me, I'll end up with hives all over my chest and mouth. And God knows what kind of havoc that is wreaking in my endocrine system in my like in inflammation in my body how long it's going to take for all of those hives to go away um swelling things like that and no one no one thinks of that um so yeah morality out of food morality out of body size fat people have been around forever i love when people try to go in the 1950s women were 80 pounds yes that is what you see because that is what media loved but guess what? There were fat people. There's, I can't even remember the name of it. There's an Instagram account that shows historic fat people because they were not celebrated. They were 
they were just not someone that people would depict. And I feel like that's what people are going to think when they look back on the 2020s and the, ugh, especially the early aughts that everyone was thin. No, no, everyone probably had some version of disordered eating that they were dealing with um, or they were taking some kind of diet pill that was going to ruin their health long-term. But um, no, fat people still existed and fat people were still competent and still smart and were successful and took care of their families and had children and were mentors but maybe they just weren't what people wanted to see when they looked in a picture. Yeah, I think that's sort of uh, uh, the storyline is true for so many groups that have been erased through history. I mean, like, I, you talk to a lot of people's grandparents right now, and they'll say, I, I never, I never met anybody that was autistic. And it's like, well, yeah, because they were in institutions. Like there's, it's or, <laughs> or if they were helpful to the economy they were just the weird person. Like, yeah, I love when I love when the older generations are like the, this is new autism thing. And it's like, Hey, my uncle has a train set that wraps around his entire basement that he is hand painted diligently every night. Yeah, no, autism's definitely brand new. Yes, 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 exactly. It's like, just because you don't remember it, or just because you weren't exposed to it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And doesn't mean it wasn't there. And that's true for so many things. And I, I feel like, obviously, we do talk all the time and recording our conversation is is new. But I do think that there's so much that people should continue looking out for you for. So I want you to shout out your different accounts and stuff. Um, And I also want to make sure that we have time for you to give like a key takeaway besides that you did the classic occupational therapy helps people find jobs stigma, which is hilarious to me that, that you did that too. But so are you asking for my handles? Oh, Sorry great. to be yeah. so specific I'm- with me. <laughs> <laughs> I am asking for, yeah, your accounts, your website, um, any, anything that you want to shout out because people have to follow you because people have to know what you're up to next. Cause it's lots of exciting stuff. And I also want your like key takeaway. Cool. I'll do key takeaway first because that feels right. So like a lesson that I want people to learn from this um, isn't everyone's a horrible person. That's not what I want people to think I'm saying. Um, What I'm saying is that you should try to analyze and really interrogate your internal biases um, and be really intentional in the way that you treat other people. Um, Something I really like to tell people to do is Harvard on their website has something called the implicit bias test. And it can give you really good information about yourself and your unconscious internal biases. And obviously you can game them. You can get them to say that you have no bias against minoritized people, but that's not helpful. Taking those tests and getting that information, no matter how uncomfortable the results are, is just data take that data and then you can use it to unlearn the shortcuts your brain has made when you were growing up. That's what an internal or an unconscious bias is. Your brain wanted to find a way to not have to analyze 
every situation is brand new. So they made shortcuts. So you just have to unlearn them. You aren't a bad person for having an internal unconscious bias, but you can work on yourself. And that's something that you, you don't just turn 25 or 30 and you're done. You're an adult and this is how you're going to be forever. That's how we end up with really hateful ignorant people um you can always work on yourself there's always something you can do to make sure you're the most accepting kind person even if you don't know all the right words there's still ways that you can be accepting and open so yeah that's my final takeaway fair enough well JBDG, we will tag accounts, put your email, put all the other things in the show notes so people can reach out to you because there is a lot that you have coming. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Jess. Bye. Bye.